today on State Scoop's Priorities podcast from Scoop News Group. Getting ready for a new governor and a Super Bowl. Planning for a strategic plan in Maine. Connecting boats for faster, more reliable access. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, and then learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. D'Angela Burns-Wallace is stepping down as Chief Information Technology Officer for the state of Kansas. Governor Laura Kelly says Burns-Wallace will step down in early January to spend more time with her family before returning to teaching in the spring. Burns-Wallace has been the state's IT lead since 2019. Kelly was re-elected to another term as the state's governor last month and says she will name a new IT leader in the coming weeks. San Francisco will spend more time considering whether, and under which circumstances, the city's police department may use its existing fleet of land-based robots to kill people. On a second vote this week, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to send the policy back to committee instead of advancing it to Mayor London Breed. The San Francisco Police Department may still use robots for non-lethal purposes until a decision is made. New York City is opening a new facility in Queens to offer free high-speed internet access to residents as part of the city's ongoing efforts to close the digital divide. The center, called the Queens Gigabit Center, uses the public Wi-Fi network run by Link NYC. The center will also offer digital literacy training and free access to laptops, tablets, computer workstations, and other services. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. It's been more than a year and a half since Arizona Governor Doug Ducey named the state CISO Tim Romer to lead the state's Department of Homeland Security. The appointment coincided with the move of the state's cybersecurity team to the department as well. Now, as Ducey prepares to leave office, Romer is a cabinet secretary gearing up for transition to a new governor from a different political party. He's also preparing for a pretty major event just a month into the new administration. Romer tells State Scoop's Benjamin Freed about what his experience has been like taking the reins as the secretary of the state's Department of Homeland Security and state CISO. It's been fantastic for me. I think it's gone well for my team uh, and the state of Arizona, you know, writ large. Uh, I think what really the biggest takeaway in the totality of the circumstance of all the challenges we are faced with from a national security, homeland security, and public safety issue, I think when you combine it all together, it is really great that our department gets to represent so many areas under one roof, consolidated and efficient. I think it's very symbolic for how important cybersecurity is to our public safety. And as the governor always says, and I say it too, I'm sure you've heard me say it a million times, but cybersecurity is homeland security. But we showed it. We didn't just say it in a talking point. We showed it by moving the team under the Department of Homeland Security. We showed it when we gave the Cyber Command Center uh, a better facility to work out of. And and that uh, translates over to stronger relationships, more trust within the state. So it is symbolic of a lot more uh, of what's at stake and in, in what we're working towards. Yeah. So let's talk about, about a few of those things that you mentioned, like the like the cyber center. It got a big kind of got a big upgrade this year. Uh, what's what's that? What's been the effect of that? Uh, having having that that better that improved bigger facility. I'll tell you. So uh, we did it for the intent that you want the best facilities to do your job, right? You know, we needed a place that was secure. We were not in an operational secure area when we were in the Department of Administration. We just weren't. Most cybersecurity teams are actually co-located with IT teams, and there's there's no good OPSEC there. You need to have some privacy by moving the cybersecurity team within the State Fusion Center and giving us our own 
secured area really helped from a facility perspective. But a lot of things that I will tell you right now, talking with my team at the end of the year that they're happiest about is that um, they feel like they were able to make the cyber command center theirs. They felt like uh, it was uh, something that they played a key part in. It helped us recruit and retain talented people because we actually had people that saw us on the news. And with the challenges of recruiting cybersecurity talent, especially in government at our wages, it's very difficult. We were able to recruit in really talented people to work on our team because they wanted to work within Cyber Command within the ACTIC, which is the Counterterrorism and Information Center here in Arizona. Those were really cool sort of, I don't want to say they were unintended. We wanted a lot of positive impacts when we, we thought that we, when we sought out to do this, but the recruitment and the retainment, my employees are happier. Uh, they feel like they've got something that's their own. And now the team is larger and really thriving. So uh, I would recommend it to any state out there. And here's the beautiful thing about it. Your state fusion centers are already paid for yeah. with Department of Homeland Security federal grants. So most of them are large enough that you could move a cyber team into. You, you, it doesn't cost you a bunch of additional money. I'm not telling people to go out there and, and buy a building or lease a building. No, just literally go in and sign an ISA, you know, with your, you know, state police organization that runs your fusion center. It's a huge win. Yeah. So speaking of your team, you, you brought in people, new people, like you, you brought in Ryan Murray to be the, you know, the deputy CISO, kind of the day-to-day manager uh, of that aspect. How, 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 how much else, how, how much else were you able to, to, to grow your team? Uh, we brought in a couple new interns. Um, so I like to say that when you're building a team, it's got to go top to bottom, right? Like we bring in a talented person that we recruited in Ryan Murray and Ryan was serving as the chief information security officer from our department of revenue. He's got a phenomenal background. He has leadership experience. He's got technical experience. He can do it all, but you can't just win this cyber war in this challenge with really you know, smart people at the top. You need really good workers. You need good soldiers, cyber warriors out there working for you every day. As I talked about, recruiting and retaining talent is difficult. So when we sought out to do this, we actually thought, how can we recruit some college university students in order to get into the roles that we can afford to pay them? They want the real world experience. The internship program has been really successful. We've got five interns. We converted one of them. Uh, to full-time staff. I think we're in the process of converting two more to full-time staff if it hasn't gone through yet. So we've got a few of our employees that are the prime examples of your talent pipeline mm-hmm. in workforce development into internships all the way through into your organization as full-time employees. Uh, and then lastly, more of like your middle management. Uh, because we got some good publicity with the Cyber Command Center, uh, we were able to get some applications from some phenomenally talented people, a couple of National Guard experience here in Arizona on the cyber side of the house. And boy, they had very small learning curves, like hit the ground running up to speed and really contributing within like a week. We've talked about this a couple times before, but what, what, what was the split like this year? I mean, how much time were you, out, were you getting to focus on the Cyber Command Center, building up the cyber team versus your other roles with respect to infrastructure security with the border? Uh, you know, what's what's been the balance? Um, you know, I'm not sure an exact percentage, but I will tell you candidly that border security and the border crisis definitely took up the majority of my time. 
this year um, for a couple different reasons. Um, I won't go into all the details, but the border crisis, you know, and we've got 375 miles of border with Mexico, uh, that has required a lot of my attention, uh, policy advice to the governor and his senior team. But the physical amount of time that I've spent on the border, when you're down there on the border, I mean, that, that takes away an entire day. Uh, sometimes more if I go down there for a couple days. Uh, I was going to Yuma very regularly this summer. Uh, so it makes it difficult to focus on cybersecurity. That's why I needed a strong deputy director. That's why I need Ryan really on the team. I couldn't have my team negatively impacted by waiting for me to respond to something or brief me on something for a decision while I'm in route to Yuma, you know, a few hours down there, all day there, a few hours back. Uh, I spent multiple nights uh, in Yuma on the border, literally all night. I'm talking like from when the sun went down to when the sun came up. Um, so that then kills the next day because eventually you got to sleep. Um, so it's, uh, border security took up a significant part, then cyber security. Uh, and then I had to share my time also with um, administrative duties and tasks. I think where I underestimated, I told my predecessor, I said, I underestimated how much time you had to spend just running a department, yeah. you know, uh, meeting with HR, uh, meeting with people on uh, employee personnel issues, uh, signing off on documents, signing off on the budget, you know, all these different types of things that when you're not an agency director, you don't have to worry about, you don't have to put your time there, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of administrative time you have to put in. And then there's my councils uh, and boards that I serve on. So. Uh, the Arizona Human Trafficking Council is one that I'm very proud to serve on, but it will, you know, take up a decent amount of time. There's, you know, I'm, I'm regularly, you know, attending those meetings uh, and working with them. Um, so when you start looking at it, you know, border security primarily took up, I could call it like, you know, 60 to 65 percent of my time. I think cybersecurity maybe 20%, uh, maybe 10% to administrative tasks and maybe 10% uh, to the boards, the commissions, the councils, um, and things like that. Yeah. You're, you're in Governor Ducey's cabinet. You've got a few, uh, a few weeks left. What do the next few weeks look like as, as, uh, Governor Ducey's administration wraps up and, um, you know, what, what, what's left, what's left that you, uh, still want to accomplish, uh, before, uh, before the term runs out? You know, candidly, I told my team when I first came in to be the director almost two years ago that I wanted a high sense of urgency to achieve things, you know, my first six months within the role because we never know how long we're going to be in roles and we're doing these for the right reasons. We know why we're doing them. I'm a big start with why person. The why is the fact that we're dealing with a lot of challenges that directly impact our public safety and security of our citizens here in Arizona. We needed to protect them, so we need to work quickly to build a cyber command center, to be in a stronger position to advise on border security and to assist there, uh, to assist with Super Bowl security, election security, all these other areas. So I'm proud of how we've moved quickly. There aren't like any projects or anything that I need to see through within the next couple of weeks. What we need to do is we need to stay focused on our mission, make sure there's a smooth transition between the governor's administrations, um, the Super Bowl, uh, it's coming up here. Um, it's it's kind of crazy, but the Super Bowl was like my first week on the job when I was the deputy director of Homeland Security eight years ago for Governor Ducey. And it will be like the first major thing that happens the first month in office for a new administration. So we really want to make sure that we set that new executive team up for success. Uh, and we've been working on this for quite some time. 
But if you're asking me for kind of like one major area that we're focused on during the transition, I would say our department is really focused on the, the Super Bowl security aspect of this. Uh, and I've got to say, it's been fantastic to see both the NFL and every agency involved. The difference between eight years ago and today is cybersecurity has so much more respect for the issue, focus and resources to it. It is, you know, I, I told somebody the other day, I said cybersecurity has a seat at the table mm. when it comes to Super Bowl security. And that speaks volumes for what we're doing. And I want to get back, I want to, get back to the Super Bowl in a minute, but I want to stick with the, the, the transition. I know you had a working relationship with, with Katie Hobbs uh, as, as Secretary of State as she's, as she's moving into the, the governor's office. Um, have you had uh, have you had interact have you ha started having interactions with with her with her team uh, and and who she might bring in and and what have those conversations been like? Yeah, I, I've had interactions with them. Like you said, great relationship. Uh, I have so much respect for Governor-elect Hobbs and her entire team. Uh, I've served with her chief of staff on the Human Trafficking Council yep. through the years. Uh, I've worked with the governor-elect on election security. I've testified. Uh, before the House uh, Elections Committee here in Arizona uh, with the Secretary of State at that time when she was in that role. And I was so impressed. Uh, I love to tell this story uh, about her, uh, which is a great compliment to her, that during the 2020 election leading up to it, we threat briefings for cybersecurity, and uh, she and her team were always invited to them. Uh, but during the pandemic, we would regularly, you know, see a phone number jump into a call and ask that person to identify themselves. And she would jump on and just say very, you know, humbly, oh, hi, it's Katie, you know, thanks for what you're doing. I wanted to make sure I knew what was happening. And to us, that was fantastic. That was phenomenal leadership because she, from a senior level, cared so much about what we were doing, what we were working for. She wanted to be in the know. She, she really became uh, sort of an expert on these issues and understanding what the threats were. Uh, so I was so impressed with her then, uh, and I am now, and I have conversations with her team uh, about, you know, what's potentially next. But, you know, candidly, what those conversations are like is it's the same with any administration anywhere in government when you go through turnover, which is like laying out what your goals and priorities are, uh, you know, whether you want to, you know, kind of stay or not or what the options are. There's no guarantees, though. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. they never tell you, uh, you know, it's a yes or a no, you can stay or you have to go. Uh, and that's the same thing that the Ducey administration did as well. They they just want to talk, have good, you know, candid, open conversations about this, and then and then we'll see where it goes. Has that has that been put on, has that been uh, presented as an option for you? Uh, no, not like a yes or a no. Just conversations and general dialogue about you know uh, what are your priorities, um, what are your recommendations, uh, and things like that. I think the way they do these types of things is, uh, and again, this is like this anywhere, you want options, right? Yeah. So uh, the governor-elect should be briefed on options of keeping agency directors mm -hmm. or other options on who she could appoint if she decided not to keep those people in those roles. And, and those, aren't, those aren't personal decisions. Those are just professional decisions. They, they have to do with, you know, true confidence. And, mm -hmm. you know, Governor Ducey brought in a lot of his own uh, team members as well. And I was really fortunate to be part of the Governor Ducey team for eight years. So uh, there will be absolutely no hard feelings and, and nothing but mutual respect uh, and really pride for our work, making sure the department uh, is put forward in a good position moving forward uh, if it's going to be led by somebody else. Yeah. Have, have, uh, so I guess, you know, just to be you know, more direct, have you given any thought to what you would say if, if, if you were asked to stay on? 
Yeah, I have. I'll keep that kind of private uh, for now. Uh, and I'll just leave it at the fact that I love my department. I love leading my department. Um, and I have great respect, not only for the governor-elect, but her entire team. Um, so I, I would love options and, and opportunities, uh, but we'll see uh, kind of how it plays out in the course of the next couple of weeks. My main priority is making sure the department moves forward in a strong direction, whether it's me or another appointed leader, that we, we have the right people to lead. Because the department's phenomenal. I mean, the working people within uh, this department are a well-oiled machine. Uh, I just I think my main priority and goal is making sure their leader, whether it's me or somebody else, uh, is strong enough to, to keep them down that strong path. All right, all right, fair enough. So let's get back to the Super Bowl because that, that's, you know, that was kind of your, like you said, that was your, your first job when you came in eight years ago. It turns out it's, it winds up being kind of the last, the last, the last big thing. I, I've, I've talked with, with, uh, with, with city officials that have, you know, uh, in, in places that have hosted past Super Bowls, and I know it's, 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 it's always, a, you know, it's about as big of an operation as, as, as you can get. What, what goes into, you know, your end of, of, uh, of, of, of planning for the Super Bowl? Um, grant management, ensuring that if, and we did this a, a year out, if there's any resources a local responder agency needs for the Super Bowl, let's say it's additional cameras, yeah. a command van, some training, you name it, any number of things that we wanted them to apply at least a year out so we could review it and make sure we're getting the resources we need, spending every grant dollar effectively to help secure the Super Bowl. And, you know, if you're not just securing the Super Bowl when, you know, you get uh, a new resource, it'll be used for any large event, uh, a Final Four a Phoenix Open, a presidential debate, uh, you, you name it, uh, Phoenix is full of yeah. large-scale events. So main role was on the grant side of it leading up to the Super Bowl. Cybersecurity support as well. So as I mentioned, cybersecurity has the seat at the table now. We lead those efforts and collaboration and partnership with NFL security and with our other partners here within Arizona. Um, so cybersecurity and then Human Trafficking Council um, we now have the Human Trafficking Council within the Emergency Operations Center for the entire week of the Super Bowl uh, that we will be having uh, our council members there to assist in those matters, especially when it comes to victim services. What people don't realize is that, you know, when a human trafficking case happens, it's not just law enforcement, but you're usually rescuing victims. And so we wanted the Human Trafficking Council to actually be present because they understand victim services and how to connect those victims with the appropriate services that they need that night, shelter, you know, uh, support, all those number of things. So uh, we're, we're kind of focused on a lot of those areas. And then there's the physical security aspect uh, of it as well, that my department is not, we don't have the staff to really be boots on the ground, uh, but we do assist where needed, um, you know, policy support, strategic support, sometimes briefing the governor uh, and things like that. The the uh, the NFL game experience is increasingly uh, there's a lot of you know device use there's you know not you know pretty it's a pretty cashless uh, envir environment at this point I imagine that there's probably a few uh, few uh, you know a whole that, that there's a whole system, uh, universe of of of, you know, of technology that you that you need to uh, help out on there. Yeah, well, so I'll be really candid. My, and I've said this publicly before, my biggest concern is when you think like a hacker, when you think like a criminal and a bad guy, and you think about disrupting a large scale event like the Super Bowl, is you, you start to understand that they're, they're more likely to go after the events surrounding the Super Bowl, more of what you would consider soft targets. 
Yeah. Super Bowl stadiums end up being more hard targets, more like structurally sound and perimeters. And you look at all the infrastructure that's been put into place for like Super Bowl security and all the staffing. Uh, we need to make sure we always do a good job of securing all the events in the week of the Super Bowl leading up to it. NFL experience is a big one, but you've got team hotels. You've got all kinds of media events. Uh, you have all kinds of concerts that are going on. So there's that. And then from a cybersecurity perspective, from a digital perspective, what worries me most is um, the uh, third parties. Yeah. So I would think that they're going to go after like a ticketing app, a concession stand app, those types of services that are essential to making sure the Super Bowl runs smoothly at large scale yeah. events. But they would probably think they're easier targets. So instead of going after like the actual stadium again, you're going to go after like a concession vendor yeah. uh, type of a thing. I saw the first college football game of the season was played uh, in Ireland and they had like all their concession systems were down. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was an IT like issue, uh, but that, that has a huge negative impact on the overall experience uh, of the game and their ability to kind of operate and keep fans, uh, you know, happy. Yeah. <laughs> So who's easier to deal with, the NFL or the federal government? Oh, goodness. Uh, that's a tough one. I'm going to just say the NFL. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> and I mean this with yeah. all due respect. I came from the federal government. Here's yeah. why. The federal government is just too big for its own good. You know, you've got like a zillion different agencies and departments to deal with and try to coordinate with. And sometimes like federal DHS is just too big for their own good. There's there's so many departments and organizations under the DHS umbrella that sometimes the bureaucracy gets the best of it and they can be kind of sometimes difficult to deal with. I mean that with all due respect and I value my relationship with all the DHS agencies and I applaud them for their work. It is really difficult work, but I'm being really candid and I think a lot of them will agree it's extremely challenging. The good news with NFL is NFL is private. They've got a good structure. You know who you're dealing with there. It's a little easier and more efficient to deal directly with one entity than an entire federal government. Tim Romer, Secretary of the Arizona Department of Homeland Security and State CISO. You can read more about him at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of State Scoop's Priorities podcast. Next week on the show, Priorities Hits the Road to talk with Illinois CIO Jennifer Ricker in her office in Springfield. You can subscribe to the podcast at prioritiespodcast.com and wherever you get your podcast. Maine's IT agency is gearing up for the development of a new strategic plan. Led by state CIO Fred Britton, the department is looking to focus on five areas that give the plan life instead of making it something that sits dusty on a shelf. Britton tells me about how the planning for the plan is going and what's next for him in Maine. Uh, you know, starting out is the question is, how have I been in the seat for three and a half years and we don't have a policy strategic plan? I would ask myself that if I had to answer to myself. Uh, and the, the real answer is, I thought when I came into the job in 2019, I thought I need a, a year to sort of get my feet under me, resolve some of the missions that I was given around partnerships, uh, and then we're going to start to spin up planning and, you know, the virus hit. So things got put on the back burner, put towards, uh, you know, immediate response and kept sort of rolling on that model of another six weeks, we'll be back in the office. Uh, and so two and a half years later saying, okay, we need to do something um, and I'm never going to be able to do planning in the way that I used to do it, which involved everybody in a room. Uh, open houses and so forth. So we've got some original, the the original um, goals established for the plan. And I, I'll just give you the sort of five headings that they sit under their governance and alignment, 
workforce technology modernization, program effectiveness, making sure those, those various programs are delivering in a positive way at the highest capacity, and strengthen security and resilience. So those chief five areas. Um, so as we're, we're moving on these, a lot of the initiatives that will roll out of these are also sort of, uh, there's a little bit of the tail wagging the dog in that we've, we have ARPA money established available to some of these projects. They are gonna eat our next three years uh, doing those. So a lot of this is simply based on, we have ARPA funding available to do some of the work. Uh, another area though, uh, as I came into the role is we didn't have an established project management office. Um, brought in a director just prior to the pandemic. Uh, and I think he's done a marvelous job of establishing uh, a really robust uh, practice for overseeing projects and what the next stage in that evolution is uh, that they have, you know, the team has pointed out, I think very, they've well articulated that there's a number of things missing. We, we think we're running projects well, but are we choosing the right projects? Are we prioritizing them right? We're really good at saying this project is going to need 4.5 networking FTE on it, but how are we doing saying we got 15 projects that need networking FTE and are we doing the right job sort of resourcing those predicting demand six months from now based on the projects in our portfolio. So they're establishing a, an enterprise project management office. And as they've pointed out to me, in the absence of a strategic plan and set priorities, as we do prioritization of projects and have to make decisions, what's our North Star? So in comes this plan. So the timing is right for us to get this done. Uh, and I'm really proud of the work that we've done around project management and uh, pretty hopeful for the work that we have ahead of us. Let, let's talk for a second more about the, the project management office and specifically the, the move to an enterprise uh, operation. I mean, when you when you look at an endeavor like that, when you look at a shift like that, what you're really talking about is is sort of rethinking the way that you approach kind of everything. Uh, how do you get your arms around that? How do you how do you approach that? How do you make some of those decisions? Um, I, I mean, the answer always comes back to people. Uh, we are, as much as we say we're a technology organization, we are all about having really good people that are insightful and high quality. Uh, and I'll, I'll continue on the path of, say, the network example, where our project management office, our practice comes in and say, hey, you need X number of FTE of advanced networking staff. And we go and we look at who we have for advanced networking staff. And as they showed me their sort of first demo of, hey, Fred, here's why you want it. Uh, they showed me a series of projects that were going to require one person, uh, one particular individual to work 120 hours a week for the next six months in order for those projects to close on time. Not feasible. So now we kind of shift and we look at this and say, well, everybody's talking about the workforce challenges we have. We know we need to deliver on these projects. And I think we're all sort of, there's kind of a, a couple of conversations. There's the recruitment and retention conversation that we have around how do we continue with our existing model of either state staff or contract staff. And then the other is how do we use professional services to cover those gaps? Because there's lots of organizations that'll show up saying, I've got this expertise and you can buy it. So if I could, I actually head down for both of those routes. Uh, one is in the recruitment and retention model. I think we've, a lot of us have talked about there's a shift from the career, the lifer as a state employee to we'll get them for less amount of time. Can we get them early in their career? We might, you know, we're not going to see them 15 years in, but if we can get three good years. So we're exploring some 
some models around what we need in those people and how to how to get them to come here to Maine. We've talked about in other settings about, you know, we, we think that today's youth are they're civic minded, they're interested in public service. That's good. Uh, we've had a recent conversation with one of our vendor partners who has said, hey, look, we can let us come in and do a service, but don't hire us to do that service in the same model such that what we do today, we're doing four years from now. Let us come in, let us go and recruit college students and we'll bring them in. We will train them up so that they can also deliver that service. And then we will ramp our own staffing down and let you hire these people as state staff. So the goal is to actually transition, particularly these newer technologies where maybe we don't have the skill sets in house using them to create a state staff model, but not overnight. So we rely on their skills and they can provide a, a model to us. So that's one thing they can do for us. We have, um, we're also recognizing that the way that people work today, I mean, we're doing it right now, Jake, in this model where we stare at each other on a camera is a little diff different with the interactions. So um, the training around how a, a technologist works has to be a little bit different. Um, we've done, and actually we were establishing a practice just prior to the pandemic where emotional intelligence training is mandatory for all our staff here in IT. Uh, we think that these skills are more and more important. Uh, another area as we're doing direct hires that we're starting to recognize is we know we can hire vendors. They're knocking on the door saying, let us come. We can do networking for you. And we say, but who's going to be your guide? Who's going to show you around? And so what we're realizing is we may not, we may struggle to hire some of the real engineering kind of talent, but what we also need more and more are people who are really skilled at coordinating among different IT units, amongst IT and agencies, and blending that in with third parties. So we're starting to see more sort of project managers, project coordinators, um, leaders that come in, I know you've probably heard the term aptitude and attitude, we're finding that that is a more relevant skill today and that we can bring in some of those technical skills at a premium, but sort of surround them as long as there can be core people. Um, another model we've used on that front that we're exploring is with a couple of our vendor partners where frequently one vendor will show up and say, we're really good at this one thing. And we said, we need that, but we need four other things surrounding it. And if you come do that, who's going to be that coordinator and guide? Um, you say we won't have to do anything. We know, we know we're going to have to do something. We can't just give, hand you the car keys and, and you'll go. Uh, so we've had a couple of vendors say, would you mind if we partner on your behalf? So I'll give you an example. We have a vendor who does work here, uh, badged employees here in the state of Maine who are doing infrastructure work and they know their ways around our network and our data centers and all of that. And then we have a cloud vendor who wants to come in and work with us. And we say, we, we, if you guys could come together, we know between the two of you, one vendor is the guide, come to us with proposals where you sort of join forces to the benefit of this state. Uh, we actually want you talking about us behind our back. And so we have a couple of our vendor partners who are out sort of diligently coming up with plans and how can they help the state of Maine recognizing, uh, I just don't have the leadership bandwidth to hire them and run them. So it's a it's another model that we're, we're kind of excited about. Uh, and then the last piece around recruitment and retention is also not knowing, we don't have strong skills around managing in a hybrid environment. We've been um, I think pretty liberal in our return to office policy where the majority of IT employees, I mean, 
take out folks who will need to be at the delivering desktops and stuff whose job really is on site. But the majority of IT employees are off site 90% of the time. So we think that's pretty liberal. I think for the most part, they appreciate that flexibility, but we're not yet sure about what that's going to do to our culture and our performance. So we're struggling a little bit uh, and looking at different ways we can have train our managers to be successful in this, train our managers to when the, the day that they may have their team on site, really leverage that as a team exercise and not just another day uh, with different scenery. So that's part of the training, uh, but also the measurements. I think we've all done various organizational performance measurements in different ways in the past, but now we're looking to say, how are we measuring uh, long-term impacts on culture, performance, um, and individual health and well-being over time. And that's one of the challenges we're looking at today is what are those specific metrics that we can look at and begin to track? Let's pull it all back together sort of to that strategic plan. Um, you know, these are these are all between the, the project management office and, and just some of these workforce initiatives. These are all giant undertakings that I think are probably enough for uh, just a singular focus as they as they stand but but when you put them all together into this vision into this idea um how do you how, how are you working and I acknowledge that the the plan's not done yet but how are you working to ensure that this becomes something that that is living and breathing and actionable and not just something that sort of ends up in the drawer uh, after after it's out I, I almost feel as though you've worked with me in the past because I know I have been involved in numerous plans in the past that have made it to the shelf. Not all, but some have simply made it to the shelf. Um, this is actually a place I'm also relying on my project management office, right? Their expertise is in scheduling, tracking, measuring success, reporting on success. So one of the things in, in order to keep both my staff and myself honest is the, the, the plan is that they then take this. And it becomes part of the standing agenda, whether it's for my leadership team um, reporting out to the department and, and in my own reports up to the administration is where do we stand on this plan? Uh, I think that's a good role for them. They frequently serve in that sort of independent view. Um, so I think that's also a key is I, I had done this in a previous role as well, which was uh, sitting on a planning team where in the end, uh, I worked for a, a campus president who said, okay, and now Fred, you are in charge of implementation. And it became a day job. Uh, and I realized this is not something that anybody does on the side. It's a full-time gig. With all of these things in flight, with with uh, with all these efforts underway, um, you know, when we talk again this time next year, uh, again, sort of wrapping up a year, looking forward, what are you thinking about? What are you hoping that you've gotten done in that time? What I would like to see is some of the some of the actions within the plan realized. So I'd like to see, um, you know, for example, the maybe a formal arrangement with a vendor providing a service on college students. Um, I fully expect to have a uh, fully implemented EPMO, uh, including there's tools associated with that, and you know, cool software gadgets so you can look at little red and yellow lights and see where we're in resource trouble. Um, uh, on the technology modernization, that includes a citizen portal. Uh, we're starting with identity on that, and we're uh, gearing up for interviews for a new director of digital services to lead that effort. I would like to be able to say we're well underway and close to actually maybe going live and bringing some uh, some of the public in. 
under technology modernization, we're bringing in a new director of cloud, actually interviews are tomorrow. Uh, and I'd like to be able to say we have uh, our both feet firmly on a path towards um, maybe eliminating a data center, moving workloads to the cloud and having good policies and structures. Fred Britton, Chief Information Officer for the State of Maine. You can read more about him and Maine's IT strategic plan at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. The largest ferry system in the United States, yes, I mean ferries like boats that people use for transit, is getting a connectivity boost thanks to a new network rolled out by the Washington State Ferries and the Washington State Department of Transportation. At a cost of about $120,000, or $6,000 per boat, the agencies equipped each ferry with a prioritized autonomous private cellular network dedicated to engineers and public safety officials working on the boats. The initiative was nominated for one of NASIO's annual state IT recognition awards. John McKay, Senior Network Engineer for Washington State Ferries, tells StateScoop's Colin Wood about the project. Yeah, so uh, when I started with Washington State Ferries, um, one of the big... uh, trouble points was uh, network connectivity on our vessels and um, before me the world had built it and it was using 802.11 wi-fi which is the same kind of wi-fi we use in our homes and in our businesses every day which worked great in a office-based environment or a small fixed environment Um, in the outside world on a moving target that floats and uh, goes up or down seven feet uh, depending on where our tide levels are Wi-Fi is not as effective, and so network connectivity for the vessels was basically only while they were in the dock. And, you know, as technology has changed and moved forward, so many more things require network connectivity, and so much more stuff requires uh, internet-based of things or computers, you know, such as mail and network drives. Uh, The vessels use a couple maintenance programs that require network connectivity and such like that. So, the real big pain point was, um, you know, a lot of people are not able to do some of their jobs so well because when the vessel's in dock, their main focus is getting passengers on and off the vessel safely. Once they're underway, they can relax a little bit and go back to their regular part of the job. Well, then now the network has disappeared and they can't really do their other part of their job. So it was, you know, the, the solution was to find a better way to, to uh, increase productivity and, and make things work well for people. Right. Um, All right. So yeah, we can we can get into that. So what was the what was the solution to, to um, the end solution to to kind of bring that together uh, ended up being cellular connectivity and using cellular routers to provide network services for the vessels. Um, we went from connectivity only in the dock uh, to connectivity almost about ninety percent of the time for the entire route that a vessel sailed back and forth all through Puget Sound, including the San Juan Islands. Um, it has uh, increased productivity quite a bit because now people do have their network. They do have access to mail and share drives, web, online-based training, um, Teams calls, stuff like that. A lot of you know the newer technology and things that we use day-to-day now, the vessels are able to do that. And their uh, you know, staff can can participate in regular work activities like other staff that are based in the office or based in work from home. Right. Is this available to the public or is it just for the... It is not not something currently available to the public. Um, that kind of lands in the category of providing services at a cost to the state. That's usually kind of frowned upon. Um, it would I would love to be able to find connectivity or find a way to provide better network for uh, customers on vessels. There's a few routes where 
Um, it's not that great. It's also a couple of the newer vessels because we add um, insulation and we add uh, special windows to, you know, to keep the keep it insulated. You know, special glazing and stuff like that. Uh, a couple of our newer vessels, they have these windows and the uh, the glazing that's inside is so efficient at uh, keeping heat and cold and all the things where it belongs. It also blocks the cellular signal for mm. phones. And mm. uh, so as soon as they walk into the vessel, they all of a sudden don't have their cell phone anymore or they don't have their hotspot. So passengers who are used to doing things on their phone, transversing back and forth, all of a sudden don't have anything at all. And um, yeah, there was right. a, a few, few complaints on that. Like, it's pretty, but I can't do my work. I can't do this. I can't do that. Right. And uh, some of the sailings are a little long. <laughs> right. So you, when the world gets attached to their cell phone, and all of a sudden there's no cell phone to be had for an hour to an hour and a half, everything's right. a little straight crazy. Right. Well, I was actually going to mention that because I've been on those ferries quite a few times when I lived in Seattle, and um, I thought it, I always felt like it was a nice break. Like, and it is, as you mentioned, it is incredibly beautiful to go out there. Mm -hmm. So, so um, could you provide a little, for anyone who doesn't know about this system, could you provide a little background on, it's, uh, it's the, from what I read on Wikipedia, it's the largest ferry system in the U.S. and so forth. Could you give some, some, I don't know if you have those numbers off the top of your head, but uh, some information about that? Uh, Washington State Ferries is the largest ferry operator in the United States. We operate uh, 21 vessels right now at uh, 20 different terminals. Uh, the far south of Puget Sound, which is Tacoma and Point Defiance, all the way far north up to the San Juan Islands, and as far north as Sydney, BC during the summertime. Um, the, you know, the big challenges are, uh, you know, the vessels never stay in one place at a time you know they some vessels may operate on a seattle to bremerton route and then uh they may need to take that vessel and shift it up north to muckleteo clinton or an edmunds kingston run because the, one of those vessels that were on there needs to go into maintenance and so for us to provide some sort of network connectivity that was um, not dependent upon a route or dependent upon an actual area was also one of the constraints um Let's see. Um, and so that was kind of one of the main reasons why we went with a cellular connection. Um, also, the available network throughput and reliability out of it um, was much, much better than trying to do another Wi-Fi solution or a satellite based or mm. some directional style antenna type of uh, setup and design. So um, I do not have the official numbers as far as like the number of passengers and, and how much uh, movement we do. Um, I know that the ferry report did come out uh, probably right about the summertime. They published an updated uh, ferry ferry rider report, um, but we do a lot of a lot of traffic comes through uh, Washington State ferries. The terminal that I'm at today, we're installing some new fiber optic cables and such. And um, Edmonds Kingston is one of our busiest little routes. It is a 25-minute sailing back and forth across the water, and they use two vessels for it. And uh, I've been here since about 6.30 this morning and the little holding lanes fill up all the way across all morning long. And this is the reverse version of traffic. So um, the fact that the Edmund side headed towards Kingston is off traffic, but yet the holding lanes fill up almost all the way before the next boat tells me that this little route is one busy little space. 
Hmm. Hmm. So, um, what is the, so you met, you know, based on the challenge that you described at the beginning of this interview, um, what sort of feedback have, have you gotten since, since this upgrade are, are people happy with it? They're able to, to work uh, more than sporadically. Are, yeah. People are very happy. Um, when we first rolled it out and started doing some testing, we picked a couple vessels to test the units on. And I remember one of them was a Seattle to Bremerton route. It was on the MV Chimicum. And I told the staff, I said, okay, we're only going to put this on here for a week. We're going to check and see how things are going. Uh, we need to make sure whether this is working for us or not. Or this permanent solution. At the end of the week, I came and I checked in with the crew and the, the engine room. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, uh, you, you don't have access to that space no more. I'm sorry, you can't take it. Uh, it now belongs to the vessel. We're going to keep ownership of it. You can't have it. You know, they were very, very attached to it. They're like, this is the best thing ever. They were so happy to be able to have decent network connectivity, to be able to still do mail and do their maintenance programs without issues, without loss of their forms, loss of their data, you know, because, you know, for us, you know, you might do a multi-page Word document, right? And then back in the day, there didn't used to be autosave. And you'd go through these multiple pages and all of a sudden your computer would blue screen on you and you're like, oh my gosh, and we've lost multiple pages. Hmm. For these poor guys, like their maintenance stuff, they go to put in all their items and click the different boxes and such. It doesn't save automatically. And so as they would lose network connectivity from the hmm. old system, all of their work would be lost. And so they would just be so frustrated. Yeah. So now it's, now it's much, much better for them. They're much, much happier. Um, but they, as, as the world always is, uh, now that it's there and now that they're used to it, uh, even five minutes to 10 minutes worth of online, it, it does generate a, hey, what's going on? How come I can't uh, mm. commit to the boat here? <laughs> you know, that type of stuff. Yeah, the, goal, so, the, the goalposts get moved very quickly. When we get yes, they do. Stuff, you make so. it better and they shift it real quick. Yeah. So um, are you, does this mean as far as, uh, you know, maintenance aside, are you done? What's next for this project, if anything? Uh, the next phase of this project is making it better. So um, when we first built it, we built it on a an old system that was already in place uh, with Verizon. And it was a private tunnel that went directly through Verizon to our office. And the new, uh, the new iteration of this is going to provide um, two pathways. One pathway will be back to our office, and the second pathway will be straight to the internet which is uh, basically what our computers do today. It's like a VPN type connection. Um, it takes the stress off of our main office network and it provides additional reliability for the vessel staff. So if our main office goes offline or if that uh, VPN link to the main office goes offline, their mail, their teams, you know, their, um, a lot of the stuff that is internet-based destined traffic still goes to the internet. It's not dependent upon the main office anymore. So it's increase of reliability, increase of uh, functionality there. It also uh, adds um, a faster data connection for them. You know, if they're able to go straight to the internet, it reduces the number of hops to go back to our office, to go all the way down to Olympia, to go out to the front door, to get to the internet, and then all the way back around again. So, you know, kind of refining the wheel, not necessarily rebuilding the wheel, but refining it. 
and then um, and then just some physical hardware changes, like adding uh, another set of antennas to increase connectivity and stuff like that. Just kind of make it a little bit more robust and a little bit more durable. You know, it was definitely learning experiences for me on how to work with uh, the different sections, different areas. Doing work on a vessel and getting things done on a vessel is definitely much, much different than getting something done on, say, like an office building. On vessels, you have maritime rules, you have Coast Guard rules. There's uh, multiple different trades and different areas that are get involved with it. Like um, when we go to add antennas on the vessels, we have to install what's called a stuffing tube. And it's a, basically a penetration that goes from the interior of the space to the exterior space. And what ends up happening is I have to get paint shop involved because they have to clean the paint off. I have to get the pipe shop involved because they're going to install a pipe. I have to get the welding shop involved because they're going to weld that pipe to it. I have to get the insulation shop involved because they're going to take the insulation down from the roof inside. Uh, and so interacting with all the different teams and the, the different groups that uh, are part of our maintenance facility over in Eagle Harbor, it's off of Bainbridge Island, and just getting the pieces together and then getting uh you know electrical engineers because a lot of this is electronics and so they got to build a drawing and build the pieces that go together the structural engineers that need to look at how the antennas go in and the bases and stuff like that and making sure that all the pieces are going to be happy um turns into so much more fun putting it in the boat where at any one of the offices i can just go get my own power drill and put a hole in the wall and put a little pipe on it and stick some antenna cable out and it's no big deal. <laughs> but yeah, the ferries, learning the ferry system, learning how to uh, navigate the, the interesting challenges of, of marine vessels and, and the different groups that it definitely involves. It's, it's much more fun, that's for sure. John McKay, Senior Network Engineer at Washington State Ferries. You can read more about him and connectivity at statesgroup.com and in links in today's show notes. The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.